Dublin boys. Yeah. So have you spent a lot of time in Dublin? Uh, no, not really. I've I've been doing work on my sort of family tree and my, my grandmother's from Dublin. So That's a push that push that a little bit closer. Did you ever interview for the Irish job? Don Gibbons once phoned me up. After Jack Charlton. Why did you only work one year contracts? Trust. Sand of despair The smell of dread in the air I'm head to toe in my own fear I'm going to die and I need to cry ah. You know, it basically I thought, well, why work somewhere just because you got a three-year contract? Yeah. Why not work somewhere because you want to work there, the fellow who's employing you wants you there, you do well, he'll offer you another contract. If you're not doing well, you don't want to be there. You went into Palace at 28, yeah, and then obviously, after three or four seasons, probably got Palace to the biggest place they've been in the last 50 years. But did you kind of take an issue with the whole bureaucracy of management and relying on the board for finances and the way the media treats you? Like, clearly as a managerial mind, you could have been a... It was a development. Um, you know, when I got the job at Palace, just after retiring, and I had, like most footballers, you think you're unbreakable. You think you're Superman. You think you're never going to get injured. And then all of a sudden I got injured. And the stark reality was that I had to retire from football. And I was very much of the opinion before my injury. You know, I have, I have a record at United, which I'm really proud of, which I don't think will ever be beaten. Four seasons. I went four seasons without missing a game. And I don't think that will ever be beaten. So, you know, I thought I was Superman. I was never going to be injured, never be affected. And then I got this injury and all of a sudden it was, what do I want to be? What do I want to do with the rest of my life? So when I retired, there was such a wave of sympathy for me. Um, I was invited to all kinds of functions. I was getting presentations galore and, you know, thanks for the memories and all this business. And I thought, well, I can't really decide what I want to do with the rest of my life until I get away from this. So um, I just had three surgeries on my knee. So uh, my leg was pretty weak at the time. So... I'd met a, a physiotherapist from Amsterdam. So I went to live in Amsterdam for three months. And the the biggest highlight of my week every week in Amsterdam was Sunday mornings when I go to Dam Square and buy the English papers and read all about English football. So my conclusion was there was something inside me which still needed to be satisfied by uh, football. So I came back, let it be known that I would want a, a job, a coaching, management, whatever. Um, prior to football, I'd always wanted to be a teacher. So I suppose it was an extension of that. And then uh, I met Ron Nodes. And at the time, he just employed Dave Bassett as manager. Dave uh, lasted four or five days. And straight away, I knew Ron was going to phone me up and offer me the job, which he did. And then... Um, we we built up a really good relationship over five years. So that was the development of me as a manager would be totally different without Ron Nodes being part of my life because he was a, a frustrated manager, which he proved when he sold Palace, he became manager of Brentford. And the two of us 
uh, uh, ran the club from top to bottom, really. Um, he was obviously the driving force, being the owner and chairman. But on the football side, we would spend hours and hours and hours going up and down. We'd watch sometimes three games a day, you know, the search for new talent, developing talent, cheap talent, <laughs> which was the most important priority of, of being a manager of Crystal Palace at that time. We had nothing. You're kind of known as a, it could be press, it could be media, because it was very rare back in the day to pursue education whilst playing, but like one of football's intellectuals, as Martin O'Neill would be. People are used for their athletic capabilities. They entertain the masses. People chant, people abuse them from the stands, but around 1% or 2% of people happen to have a brain and they then go on to manage in the game. The Pep Guardiola, the Jose Marinos, they're particularly intelligent men. Fergie, in his own right, he's a huge fan of history. He's well-read. But when I look at Wayne Rooney now and his job at Derby, I just think to myself, this was never going to work. For me, I, do, I don't think Rooney's sitting there reading Johan Cruyff books. No, it's easy to fall into football management if you're a name. And... But that's what I'm saying. Do you the need? Money, money, do you need to have that intellect to manage? Is it's a it's a different? No, you don't. Definitely no. You know, some simplicity is genius. If you can talk on a level with the players and inspire them, whether you have intelligence or not, and the motivations for doing it, I don't think really matter. But the motivation for most people doing it is, is finances, cash. You know, it's if you're unemployed at 31, 32, 35, whatever. All the best. There's a similar personality trait within all of them, and it's curiosity of information. Yeah. For me, Rooney yeah. is doing what you're describing. Well, it's kind of tunnel vision is more the priority, I would say. I, you need to have that obsession with the game, whether you're intelligent and you can um, see the game from a different light. You need to understand that it's the obsession, the obsession, the passion which ignites the fire of your players. You can be a huge pseudo-intellectual, be very, very cold and clinical about it, and here are the reasons, one, two, three, four, why we can win a football game. But if you're saying it without passion and desire, they smell you. It's the hardest place to be, a dressing room at half-time. You know, in my first year of management, we get beat most weeks, and the players would come in at the end of the game, and they'd be looking at me for the answers. And I didn't have the answers. And that drove me to, to just research and do as much work as I could to try and find the answers. But today, it's more about passion than the intellectual knowledge to help. Well, what is the reason that people like Eddie Howe and Sean Dyke can overachieve, similarly to what you did at Reading and Palace, to such an extent, but not be in line for the jobs of the big clubs? Is it more marketable to get in a big foreign name? Is it more yeah, glamorous? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because the people making the decisions now at football clubs and football association, you know, they are besotted by the image of a, a top handsome guy in a cardigan. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So I mean, Eddie Howe gets enough. the Tottenham job tomorrow. You're telling me he 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 could get top four. He could have them playing football in the way that would have them maybe get into European Cup quarterfinals or semi-finals. I don't know because he hasn't got the track record of doing that. But it's born with job. Would I employ him? Yes. Sean Dyche, would I employ? 100%. Because he's genuine. You speak to him on the phone. He hasn't got the beautiful, soft voice. You know, he's got that grit and determination. Yeah. He talks about things which are not fashionable now in football. You know, the fact that, you know, sometimes you've just got to roll your sleeves up and sweat. 
you know, and that's the way you get results rather than possession, possession. We've got yeah. to have 67% of possession to win a football game. It doesn't work like that. But the track record with his budget, it is as much of a track record as winning league cups or winning FA cups. No, with no one cares about money. that. Only a few people care about budgets. If if you're Dan Levy and you want Tottenham to win games, yeah, Eddie Howe will win you games. Give him Gareth Bale. Give him Harry Kane. But exactly. the players would view him as inferior to them. They're multi-millionaires. They'd go. He came from Bournemouth, it's, and they wouldn't try for him. It's a totally different thing having limited resources and getting results, and then having unlimited resources commas and getting results it's a totally different dynamic you're dealing with a different animal when you're dealing with a limited budget you're dealing with people who are desperate to succeed themselves and become one of those elite echelon players yeah and all of a sudden if you have and one of the big issues dealing with big clubs is you've got 25 in their minds legends who all want to play. So they're nearly justified, the heads of these clubs, in getting the Potches in and getting the Mourinho's in once again because you need people who believe they're celebrities to deal with people who believe they're celebrities. I'm a great believer in the fact that you don't necessarily need an ex-legend to be a, a manager. You know, you go back, Laurie McMenemy, these people who've never played. You know, obviously, Jose never played. You need someone who can handle the dressing room. The most important thing is dealing with the chemistry, the balance of the personalities within the dressing room and bringing out the best in them. Because if you can't do that, if you can't walk into a dressing room and have the respect of 90% of the people who are going to play for you, you're in trouble. The question is, though, do the English managers who clearly can manage, who clearly have overachieved with their clubs them not getting the big jobs. Is it results-based or is it glamour-based? Could they get the results or is it kind of known now that Gareth Bale would not run for Eddie Howe? Marketability and a feeling. You you think of Levy now, he's in a situation where he's got to please his boss, the owner of the club, Joe Lewis, in it, who owns Tottenham. He's got to please the fans. He's got to please the key elements of the dress room. You know, Kane now has taken on a... a a responsibility almost within the club to 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 be the person who sees a future in Tottenham because if he doesn't, then again the whole dynamic of the club changes. He's nearly the manager, yeah. in, in a way. Well, he, he he's got the same sort of clout as the manager, yeah. and I'm sure Levy will go to Kane and say, "Well, you know, just none you the wink here. We're thinking about employing this fellow. You know, does he sit nicely with you?" There's an element of that. You've got to make him happy. He's the man who's going to drive the club going forward just from his performances. You know, there are certain individuals right across the world within certain clubs who are the most important players. You know, I had a similar thing with Ian Wright at Crystal Palace. You know, (laughs) he drove the club. And when he decided to leave, it was a little bit of a nail in the coffin for the club at that particular stage. You took him off a Sunday league pitch, essentially. Yeah, we were part of his development. And but he was 22 or something when he went to Palace, wasn't he? Like he there was a possibility of him going under Scotford. Well, like I always say that will never happen because his ability was such. How was he still there at 22? I think size was an issue. As a kid growing up, has been on the television recently, he had his issues as a kid. You know, he's he's a complex character in many ways. He's a powerful character. Uh, even without having the performances to back it up, he was a strong character within our dressing room at the time. And, you know, the first year he was with us, he was known as a super sub. 
So he came to us at 22, and then till he was 23, 24. And this is a man who was in a hurry to get where he wanted to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would knock on my door every week. Why am I super sub? Why am I on the bench? Why am I not playing? Well, you're just not quite ready yet. We need to just give it a little bit more of what you need to take you to where you want to be. But he came and trained with those. It was a connection with a non-league manager called Billy Smith. He came training with those. Within three days, we'd offered him a contract. And after those three days, I went to Ron Nodes. I said, this is going to sound stupid. Little black kids just come in off the streets. We don't know a great deal about him. He has got the ability to play for England. And, you know, Ron looked at me as if I was crazy. And then we saw him play. And in training, left foot, right foot, pace, brilliant in the air, real hunger and desire. You know, there was an anger to him as well. Yeah, he was, you know, and if he didn't, he was spoilt, you know, if he didn't get his own way sometimes, you know, he'd have a little sulk and a moan up. Back to what I was saying, just in terms of in management, we all try to break down these characters as kind of like geniuses, as if they're, it's, it's philosophical, as if it's science, but it's all personality management. Like Pep goes into a club with the advantage of the reputation, so the motivation's nearly already done. Is what you're saying? Yeah, to a certain extent. Does his tactics make a difference? Does him actually saying, this is how we pass the ball, this is what we do, does that make... In his case, yeah. What what I would say is, I've uh, I've always said, you know, success in football is easy. It is easy. If you've got the most money, you buy the best players, then you've got the best team. It's a simple formula. So why didn't, like, a Mark Hughes work at City? Because that was the development stage. What about Villas-Boas at Chelsea? There is the failures. There is a fit. But Pep with comes with a club. guarantee. Pep comes with a guarantee that no other manager... Yeah, the clubs he's managed. Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Man City, with the, with the resources of all those three clubs. If he went to Southend, would he have saved them from being relegated? Yeah, I, I, I think with Pep, because it comes back to Fer, Fergie at Aberdeen. The, the same opinion. I'm not arguing against you. And it comes back to Brian Clough at Derby. There's certain people who are just tailor-made to lead dressing rooms and to tell footballers how to win games. I think he gets Southend promoted. <laughs> I, 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 I always it, said that about Fergie. I always said, you know, if he'd gone to Rochdale, would Rochdale be in the Premier League yeah. in four years' time? He's got to work if, with the players, make them better, make them a better team. Let's say Sheffield Wednesday just went down. If the world just got real fucked up, which it already is, and Pep decided to get the Sheffield Wednesday job last August, yeah. they'd be in the playoffs now, minimum. Well, it would be a hell of a challenge. Fergie God. used to make Chris Smalling think he was world class. Well, uh, well, he did that with an awful lot of players. That's what I mean. You know, he could convince players that they were top players. You wouldn't also, have taken John O'Shea at Reading whilst he was winning leagues. He also had a few duds. If you actually analyse his history and the players he's had, there was quite a few duds along the way. So, you know, it's it's not 100% guaranteed. But, you know, if I was employing a manager now, if I owned the club, would I sign Fergie? I'd break the bank to sign Fergie. Who do you think's the best ever, Fergie? Uh, well, I was brought up in a Liverpool environment. So for me, you know, a Shankly, a Paisley, you know, they, they're, they're all on the same level. You know, Cluffy, we played against Cluffy many, many times. I always did reasonably well against Cluffy, but I, I sort of played against him in his latter years when maybe he was not as concentrated, I think is the best way of putting it. And in those times, his team were told to be ready to go out to play and he spoke to them for maximum three minutes before a game. And that transformation made them, you know, you, you look at Kenny Burns, Larry Lloyd, yeah. some of the players he had, 
you know, Peter With, you know, all these players, and he transformed them into giants, European stage giants. And that is a, a gift, one in however many millions of people have. Perhaps it's different because he can transform a playing style, a team. He's out on the training ground every day. When he takes a session, people listen. Uh. People listen and they take note and they know that he has the formula. And football is all about the formula. Going back many, many years, wing commander Charles Reap, the long ball game. Uh. You know, there's a lot of talk about Europe at the moment. Stan Cullis, the fabulous Wolverhampton side uh. who pioneered European football. Floodlights, going back those uh. times. But you need a formula to win games. There, there is a secret without doubt. Some people have it. It's not just about motivation. There is a way of playing, the style of playing, a lesson that must be learned and, and really honoured to be successful. Did you know Matt Busby personally? When I signed for Manchester United, um, uh, I signed in the February. That summer, um, Manchester United... Every, I think it was five years, United used to go on a world tour. It was a, a fundraising thing. They were making money. And we went on a, a, well, a five-week, at the end of the season, a five-week world tour. And I missed the first two weeks because I was doing my exams at university. And um, I took a flight from um, Manchester um, to Hong Kong. I was meeting up with the team in Hong Kong. And I knew on the flight was Matt Busby. So I got on this flight, cattle class, which wouldn't have applied today. And I'm thinking, well, Samat will be first class. I went to the stewardess. I said, oh, I believe Samat Busby's on the flight. She said, oh, no, I'm sure he isn't. I said, well, can you just check the manifest? And she looked at it. She said, oh, yeah, he's right at the back. He had requested a smoking seat. <laughs> and the smoking seats were at the back of the plane. So I walked back to the back of the plane, and there's Samat. The first stop was Bombay. I always remember it was Mumbai, Bombay. And the back of the plane was full of Indians smoking cigarettes. And there was Samat right in the middle of them with his pipe puffing away. And I then spent the next eight hours choking on the fumes, just chatting to Samat about football life. You know, it, it was the best interview I've ever given to anybody. He was. He it's was strange, wonderful. isn't it? Because like for someone of my era, that's essentially like talking to somebody who claims they've met Jesus. Yeah. Like Matt Busby is is nearly now myth. And and, and another thing, uh, Michael, uh, playing for England, so Matt was on the international committee, and I always remember this clear as day. The picture is in my mind now. We played away in Germany once. And just by an accident where I was sitting and some Matt was sitting on the flight, I could see his face. And we were landing in Munich. And there was two foot of snow on the ground in Munich. And as we were coming in to land, I'm looking out and I'm thinking, what is going through his mind at the moment? And I had this diagonal view of his face and it did not flicker a twitch. There was nothing there, and I was sort of focusing on, on him as we landed, as we got into the terminal. And I'm thinking, just imagine the thoughts going through his mind. But that generation, that generation had an ability to nearly recognise that life is so fucking weird. Yeah. That shit happens. Yeah. And Busby, he probably was able to bury that emotionally. 
Like, if you think about a manager now, if they were with their team on the way to play, or on the way back from a Champions League semi-final, eight players died and they ended up in a near-death yeah. experience in hospital. Six years later, it's a BBC documentary. Yeah. And that becomes an excuse. Yeah. They don't win the European Cup 10 years later and have the audacity to get on, on a flight to the same landing strip but snow on it again. Yeah. Now, you could argue they're all in denial and that they were barriers of trauma, but there's another argument to say that they just fucking got on with it. Yeah. As someone yeah. who's in between those eras, yeah. you look at our era. Yeah. And it is, it's open. Everyone explains their problems. Is there too much victimization? Or back in the day, were they just in denial? Do you look at now the kids going, I appreciate that everything is is in play, we, we don't identify genders, everyone's a victim, people need to explain their trauma, or are you kind of going, guys, shut the fuck up and get on with it? I'm very much a get on with it kind of person. You know, life deals you what it deals you, and you got it's your responsibility to make the best of that. And, you know, to, to Samat and those kind of characters, it's a prime example, which you have to, you have to deny in certain circumstances, but... I can only just admire those kind of people. Put them on the pedestal, that I'm sure you do as well. You, th you look at them and you think, how on earth did they put up with all that and be successful? And, you know, certainly in Samat's case, you know, have a wonderful family life and everything. You know, brilliant. What was Tommy Doherty like? Well, for me, he was a legend. legend. You know, he, he, he signed me. Um, I always remember getting a phone call. I was playing for Tranmere at the time, second year of university. The general manager at uh, Tranmere Rovers, Dave Russell, phoned me up one day and he, he just said, get your ass over here. Tommy Doherty is in my office. We've agreed a fee to sell you to Man United. And I, I was a Liverpool fan. I was always in, you know, hoping. Are you still a Liverpool fan? You never lose your your home club. So if United are playing Liverpool, I, I can't lose. I always say you're, Liver I you're Liverpool. I can't lose. I always say. I always say. I want, Heartbreaking. I want the best team to win. Is that the reason that we kind of when we're talking about iconic sevens, we go straight from best skip you to Brian Robson because everyone knows that you're a scouser who managed City briefly. <laughs> yeah, probably. Like he nicked the seven off me when he came. Yeah. It was one of those. Yeah. Like it was my shirts at the time, and then Rubble came in, and it was all of. A I can't believe it. Steve, Steve, you could be eight or eleven. What do you want? Well, what happened to seven? Oh, Rubble's getting that. You know, it's over a million pound. He cost you were only six. You're a proper Liverpoolian, though. You went to the same school as John Lennon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funnily, I went to the same junior school and senior school as Joe Royal, which is. We're probably the only two kids who've done it because they were on opposite opposite sides of Liverpool. When you're walking around the corridors at the same school as John Lennon, can you can you smell them? Do the Every teachers go on about it? In those days, you used to have a textbook in for your year. You used to put your name in, and every textbook had John Lennon in. You know, everyone thought it was brilliantly funny. But ironically, one of my mates, who one of my closest friends at university, in later years, bought the cavern. So there's a real connection for the Beatles, John Lennon. You know, and obviously anyone from Liverpool is so proud of the Beatles and what they achieved. Brilliant. Manchester and Liverpool, though, although rivals in some ways are the best of friends. Yeah. And proven by the reaction to things like the European Super League and what they stand for as yeah, cities. Yeah. Just, well, that was revolting. What What was possible? It wasn't possible. Yeah, I look at it this way. I think the idea of a Euro European Super League is brilliant. If it was earned. 
you know, the very fact that we have the Champions League now and four teams qualify for the Champions League, you know, right from when this first started, well, that's ridiculous. Let's go back to the old classical. If you win the league, you're in the Champions League because you are the champions. You finish fourth in your respective league and you can win the Champions League. It doesn't equate to me. You know, it's, it's the longevity of the process of winning the Champions League. So, you know, I, I, the whole thing, the commercial powerhouses cherry-picked their mates to try and create this league. And thankfully, the, the sporting public reacted in the best way possible. But that's what I'm saying. Like, if you look at your career, you're 33, you're in an FA Cup final against Fergie. He hasn't won a trophy yet in England, and either of you. You could have won that game easily. You then get Palace to third in the league. You go to Reading. You break the points record in the championship. Is that element of football the reason why you haven't pursued management properly? If Steve Bruce can be a consistent Premier League manager, there's no reason why Steve Koppel couldn't be the go-to guy if you want to save a team from relegation. But you just haven't had your name in the ring or name in the hat. It's a disillusionment in what football stands for. No, no, no. I don't really play the game as such. You know, I don't have an agent. Um, You know, I don't... Why? uh, I, don't, I don't think I need one. So if you if you want to hire Steve Copy, you contact him directly. Yeah, yeah. My phone number is as available as Boris Johnson's, apparently. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's not going to happen now. I, I'm I'm fully aware of the fact that you know I'm I'm probably seen as well. Football has retired me. I think that's the best way of putting it. I played golf with somebody the other week, and when I was introduced, he thought he said, "I haven't heard of you for so long. I thought you were dead." So <laughs> there is an element of that about me. You know, I don't push myself out there. I don't do any, um, you know, TV as such, radio, apart from this good broadcast. Um, yeah. You know, the, the things which tickle my fancy I do, really, rather than what you're supposed to do. I know if I possibly went on, you know, Sky or made myself more... Uh, apparent then I would pick up things why doesn't punditry appeal to you I've done it you well know, like let's say doing Sky and just offering no but I, I've, I, I've done that I had an element of doing you know match of the day and it's a real buzz it's brilliant live TV you're sitting there sitting uh, yourself thinking yeah. oh, I hope you asked me the right question the Sky um, Saturday afternoon programme you know I'm, I'm one of a very limit, limited number of club um, people on that programme who missed the goal on the game he was commentating on. So I, I came to the conclusion that possibly that's not the right career choice for me. But, you know, I've done it. I've sort of ticked that box and, you know, I've moved on to something else, something else which appeals. You know, they say life is five minutes long, really, in terms of if you if you add up the time you weren't alive for before you were born and then the time that will come after, you essentially don't exist. You're just a flicker. Is there ever a part that goes committing my entire identity to kicking around a bag of wind could have been a waste. Well, I, I often say that. I don't want my life to be determined by by football, to, you know, whether I'm successful as a manager or not. People to see me as, as being either successful or not. There's more to life than... We're kicking a ball into a goal. Yeah. But, you know, you think <laughs> chess. I look at chess and I think... What a magnificent game. What a, but are these all just distractions from actually... Yeah. Life itself. You know, relationships. That's what life's all about, isn't it? The relationships you have with people and, and you know, your family in particular and the way you bring up kids and things like this. This is the most important thing in life. But, you know, when you've got 60-odd million people in, in Great Britain, 
it's such an important factor. You know, football's more important life and death. You know, it's it's one of those harking back, Lombardi, Shankly. You know, they are distortions. But that, eventually, you become irrelevant, like Dixie Dean. Is he big anymore? Not really. <laughs> well, I, I've got quite a few Avatonian pals who, who still. Yeah, but in my generation, yeah, and he was, and he should be, because I think he got. Did he get 60 legals once? Yeah, well, that's, that's yeah. not even funny. Yeah. yeah. Messi got 50, in fairness to him, but Dixie Dean getting 60 is an absolute joke. But yeah. it does because it does get to a stage where we all kind of become irrelevant. And, and obviously, your parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, had the distraction of immortality with religion. Yeah. Are you somebody who'd. who'd Abide by that, or are you accepting no, no, I, I, that I, I, we're going now? You know, I, I've been down that route. You know, I was brought up. I went to church every week. You know, I fond memories of going to church every Sunday morning when my mum and dad were still in bed, <laughs> <laughs> just packing me off to church with my brother. Um, you know, I think my father was a Catholic. Um, I was brought up Protestant. So again, in Liverpool, my father passed away. My mum's 94. Fuck. Coping magnificently with uh, um, the pandemic. When did your, your dad die? Uh, 2000. So he saw you play football? Yeah, yeah. He was, was he proud of that? Yeah, he was. He was um, immensely proud. He used to love coming to the games. Um, he, as as uh, when I played for England or important games... I used to give my shirts to my dad and he, he catalogued them all and everything. And then um, I always remember one Sunday after my dad had passed away, I went to my, my mum's house and there were all the cousins and grandchildren playing in the back garden, running around yeah, in yeah, Portugal yeah. shirts, Brazil shirts, all the yeah, all the ones had swapped. But my dad had very, very carefully catalogued and put in plastic bags and they were immaculate kids rolling around in all kinds of shit and everything. And... After a while, though, like when you make an international debut and you actually manage to get, what was it, 42 England caps? Mm. But that first one, it is for your family. It's for where you came from. You're representing them. But, but like cap 16, does it feel as good or does it just become an element of the job? No, no. It, 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 each and every one felt as good. Do you but have it, all those caps physically? Uh, no, I don't because I played in the World Cup in 82, which is probably physically my downfall in terms of my injury because I uh, played for seven months with no ACL, torn cartilage and everything because I wanted to play in a World Cup. But the, the World Cup campaign, all the qualification games and actually the games in Spain are on one cap. Ted Croker, he used to be the secretary of the FA. I said to him once, I said, listen, don't pay me to play for England, but give me a cap per game. I don't want the money. Give me a cap per game. And he said, oh, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. So I've got about a dozen, I think it is, on one cap. You know, I, I'm not really very good at the memorabilia. I've got the caps around, but I don't know exactly whether I've got them all. Can you still wake up in a bad mood or do you just go, I played for England 42 times, I feel pretty good about myself? Does the past provide enough to give you happiness into the future yeah. about yourself? So not not every each and every day, 24-7 all the time, but... It's a nice warm feeling inside. Yeah. Knowing, you know, I always say to have represented my country, you know, I feel. Yeah. There's only, what, 1,200 people ever who've done that. Yeah. I feel proud to have done that. And bearing in mind as well, when I first went to United, I got a little bit embarrassed at international breaks because I wasn't selected for a couple of years for England. And international breaks, I think there'd be me and Alex Stepney left behind, and all the other players would be away with their respective countries. So it was. For a year or so, it was all internationals again. And then I was picked, and I made my debut against uh, Italy at Wembley. 
which the old Wembley where you used to walk up the passageway from never should have been knocked. It was magnificent. You grow old and that does provide enough. You're going to be a great granddad who played for England. And it does actually do what they say it does. Like when you got your first cap, they would have told you, remember this for the rest of your life. Yeah. It is your legacy. You're the England international yeah, but, Steve couple. Yeah. But there's a time attachment to it. Um, probably about five, six years ago. Um, I obviously go and see my mum. My mum lives in Rain Hill, which should be famous worldwide because it was the location of the, uh, the railway trials. But nobody knows Rainhill. My mum lives in Rainhill, which is in between Liverpool and Manchester. I visit her regularly. And I've always steered away from being sort of an ambassador of clubs and things like this. But about five, six years ago, I was invited to Old Trafford to be a match day ambassador. And yeah, there's about 20-odd yeah. ex-players who do it now, or yeah. did do it before pandemic. So I went one day and think, well, this would be really good. I'll go to Old Trafford, uh, watch the game, do a little bit of handshaking and all this. See me mom weekend, tick boxes, fabulous. And I, I went to Old Trafford and again, as I said, 12 o'clock, there's about 20 odd ex-players in this room and you're assigned a restaurant or a private box and you go there. And I went to this restaurant and I, it was one of those, well, what do I do? And I thought, I said, well, you go to a table and introduce yourself. Oh. Uh, it's terrific, as you can tell from your reaction. So, oh, right, okay. So I went to the first table, and almost all the tables were the same in as much that there were three generations. And I go to the first table, oh, hello, um, I'm Steve Cockrell. Um, <laughs> just here to say hello, and I hope you enjoy the game today. And if you, you want to ask me anything about you know, the game and the teams and whatever, you know, just feel free, feel free. And like the grandson would always go, who's he? And the granddad would say, well, that's Steve Koppel. He used to play here on the wings, a really good player. Yeah. And then the father would say, Google him. <laughs> Having done that for one game, I decided now give that career twist a, a different direction. I don't want to be doing that. But that period you played for Free United, although unsuccessful in the club's history, but a lot of hardcore United fans believe that Doc's Army was kind of the greatest era in the history of the club he, he was something very very special. but what all you boys stood for you Gordon Hill entertaining football underachievement but it was when the fans were most in touch with the club yeah I, again I, I was signing in the February and that my first eat, Easter at United we played Friday Saturday and Monday the Easter weekend fixtures were Friday Easter good Friday you Saturday, play again on the Saturday and that's just on ridiculous the, on Easter Monday but that was the real the acid test of a team. You know, it was always seen that the championship was won at Easter because three games in four days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And bearing in mind then in those days, again, I think Liverpool won the league once with 14 players. Not Forest won it, I think, with 14, 15 players. Hardly any changes were did made. Did you ever hear the echoes of the comeback of George Best running around your head? As the new winger, did you feel like you were compared to him? Uh, no. I, I played against George in a in a, a testimonial, two testimonials, Dave, Dave Clements, a QPR, the poor fellow who, who lost his life, he killed himself, and also for Paddy Grerand. And this was after he'd been in Spain for three years on the piss. And yeah. He came back and he looked a bit chubby. And I'm looking at him in the warm-up before the game and I'm thinking, George Best. <laughs> and then I was sort of directly opposite, and he came on my side. I was playing yeah. sort of against him, not directly, but 
he was on my side of the pitch and he got the ball once and he had without doubt the quickest feet I have ever seen even he, as a fat pisshead even as a fat pisshead <laughs> the quickest feet left foot right foot and I'm thinking whoa this is a different league I appreciated from that moment on what a player he must have been yeah. when he was 17, 18, 19, 20. He was, even in those games, respect. That's all I would say. And could easily respect. play now, even as I, I had Louis Saha was on and he was saying that George Best and these guys, they couldn't play at the top level now because of physical ah, fitness. Rubbish. I said they might not have the longevity because they're not doing squats and deadlifts. If George Best had a counter-attack with Mason Greenwood to his left and Marcus Rashford to his right, we'd fucking score now in front of the Stratford end. It's got nothing to do with physical fitness. It's football fitness, which yeah. is mental. Not George Best modernised. The George yeah. Best as he was. The George Best as he was would be even better now because of the pitches, because of the fact that you can't hack him from behind. You know, that wonderful goal he scores at Old Trafford where Chopper Harris yeah, is yeah, literally... Yeah, yeah. And he runs the keeper. Trying to kick his legs away from him. You look at that and you think, oh, sensational. Wonderful football brain transcends time. Do you and think... they are the geniuses. Cruyff, Maradona, Messi. Was Glenn you know, Hoddle in that category? Yes, I, I would say, because, I, I, you know, and we were almost in direct competition. The saddest thing I always thought about Glenn was that he was sort of shoved out to the wing to try and accommodate him because they thought, well, great, and what have you, he couldn't cope in the middle of the park at international football. But I thought he was, he was magical. And the size of him, that was the thing I couldn't, understand or, or, or come to terms with. He was so tall and balanced. And a lot of the taller players, the centre-half, they stand there, head it and kick it. And Glenn's 6-1 or whatever he is. And he was balanced. He was balletic. He was he was fabulous player. My opinion would be that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he's not going to bring the European Cup or League to Old Trafford. He, he isn't. With Tuchel in the league, with Guardiola there, with Klopp, either going to come back next season or leave. Our standards have dropped. Solskjaer isn't going to win the league at United. He can't. He doesn't have the CV. He probably is too nice of a guy. And he's probably a great tool for the Glazers to use because they can pretend that he's a fan favourite and not get criticism. I would agree with that too. The the only criticism I have about Ole is there's no identity to his teams. You know, you look at... It's all individual talent that that, that we come back and score. If all the teams were were playing in, in pink or lime green... You would see Man City play Man City. You'd see Liverpool play Liverpool. You'd see Man United play, and it depends who was playing. Yeah, and you know that is the only thing I would say about uh, Ollie. It's such a difficult job, but I think his teams have got to have more of an identity. There is the, the you know the classic. You have to have it. There is a United way of playing. And you have to satisfy. It's, it's now that. becoming the myth, though, isn't yeah. it? It's now becoming yeah. used. He's nearly doing an impersonation of Fergie. Like I wouldn't be shocked next season if he's tapping his watch and chewing chewing gum. It's becoming immensely cliche, and I think he's a foil being used by the owners to make sure the fan criticism is minimal because we got a fan favorite in because people aren't going to be as Ole out as they would be Van Gaal out because he's one of our own. He scored the goal in the Champions League final, but Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Well, doesn't now, have the capabilities to win a league ahead of Klopp Guardiola or Tuchel. He doesn't. The owners now have got a debt to pay to the supporters, the worldwide supporters of the club. And the easiest way for them to do that is to spend a lot of money this coming summer. 
that will, to a certain extent, pacify because of the criticisms of the money they take out. Um, and I, I, I expect them to spend an awful lot of money this summer. And next year will be the watershed for, for Ollie. He's definitely got to deliver. It's it's starting to sound like we're nearly talking though. But you look at you go back to Fergie three years and it was dire. The year we got to the cup final, we played Crystal Palace played Man United. I think it was something like December twenty seven or something like that, and we beat them two one at Old Trafford. This was before the May Cup final, before the third round of the FA Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark Robbins yeah, yeah, yeah. saved his job. And we we played Man United. And Fergie, to be fair, brilliant. Always invited you in after the game. We beat them 2-1, I think it was, at Old Trafford. Went in afterwards to his office. And Fergie spent most of the time just looking at the, the floor. He was very polite. <laughs> gave us a beer and tried to chat, but didn't. Looking at the floor. And afterwards, I said to my staff, I said, oof, dead man walking there, I think. You know, he hasn't got long to go. Lo and behold, they win the third round of the FA Cup and go on and beat us in the final. And that transformation. But he'd had his Aberdeen time. That's the thing. He'd done it before. He broke the old firm three times. Did that matter three years of United without producing any kind of silverware? I think it gave no, us some evidence that he could do it. Solskjaer's had Cardiff and Molde. It gave us some evidence that there's something special about the guy. The old firm hadn't been broken in years. He also won the Cup Winners' Cup with Aberdeen. Everyone knew he had the capability to overachieve as a manager, but Solskjaer just seems like it's impersonation of that without the evidence. Yeah, but until you're given that opportunity, it's hard to produce the evidence, isn't it? Like Solskjaer, like Mulder. <laughs> it's a household name in Mulder. Well, yeah. He's well there <laughs> the title. But yeah, I don't know. It's a difficult one to try and select that fit. And with United, it's very much a fit. Again, going back to the Levy situation, you have to tick boxes for so many sections of the club. And the supporters, uh, obviously a massive tick box Man United. But not the most important. How close were you to the England job in 94? Some way off, I think it was would be the best way of putting it. Uh, during my time at Crystal Palace, I think I they used to have a, a football league team. And I've taken the football league team a couple of times. And that was always seen as maybe a, not a trial run, but a bit, little bit of a test that you, you get the uh, establishment. They just run you over a little bit, see what you like and... Uh, can you cope with it? Um, but not really close at all. Would I have wanted to do it? I don't think I would, to be honest. I think the England job. I think there is a time to do it, and I was so wrapped up. Did you interview it. though? No, I didn't interview. No, no. But mooted like a lot of people at uh, various stages. You know, you are suggested as being a likely candidate were it to become available. You know, and it's ironic, really. To, uh, you know, one of my ex-players now is England manager. <laughs> and uh, thinking about players, as a young kid growing up, if you'd have said to me, oh, Gareth's going to be a manager, manage the country, I would have said no. But seeing him now, he's obviously... Um, Do you think he's a good manager or is it just a case of being very good at abiding by the rule book that comes from above? No, no, no. It It's um, obviously a unique job totally different from club football. I'm sure, I've never asked Gareth this, but I'm sure he wants to be successful at club football. 
Mm. I think that's his real acid test. Whereas, you know, having done what he's done, he's done the model the way it was supposed to work in as much that he took the under-21s, supposedly learnt the craft and the art, whether there was any interaction between him and any of the England managers, I doubt, because it's not a sort of a well-known procession. But um, he's come in and done the job, surrounded himself with good people, and also being England manager at a time when there was a real... Um, result from the massive investment all the Premier League clubs in their made in their academies. You know, all of a sudden, you know, the academy players weren't the kids who cleaned out the dressing room. Yeah, they were, the they were Phil Foden. They, yeah, they were the ones who have been under the microscope of the tuition of so many experts in so many fields, making them better players. Yeah. Physically and, and and mentally, which is equally more important. My big fear is that United have the audacity to... He's already got the World Cup semi. The Euros, let's say, goes well. A penalty hits a post and it goes its way. He gets to a final or a semi. And United know how commercially viable getting the England manager in would be. And how the eyes of the world would be... Is that too loud there now? How the eyes of the world would be on the club from getting in somebody with such a name and such a media interest that they have the audacity to employ him after Solskjaer. And that would mean that I'd probably go and bomb Old Trafford. <laughs> well, what about Tottenham this summer? You know, would, they, okay. would they hold out just to see what Gareth's position would be? Because if Gareth wins in the summer, would he be satisfied? Wins the tournament. That yeah. ain't happening. He's got some good players. Do you think they can win it, yeah? Oh, yeah, definitely. You don't think that kind of national hysteria and national nervousness will always rear its head and it's impossible? I think it's improbable, but it is possible. And by rotation, you know, you look at the, the stellar nations now, the development of our youngsters has been such, I think we have more depth and I think we possibly have more quality than a lot of the, the countries you would look at as being prime contenders. I think Portugal do it. You have Ronaldo who has underachieved at club level all season for the first time in nearly yeah. two decades who's hungry and doesn't like losing. Yeah. You have Bruno Fernandes. You have Ruben Diaz who's put in one of the best performances of centre half we've ever seen in English football. You have Cancelo. You have Yao Felix. You have Bernardo Silva. And you have the fact that a lot of the players have won it last time out. I think Portugal at 8-1 to one yeah, are I would unbelievable say, bet. Yeah, I would probably agree with you there. And uh, yeah, You can make a case for a lot of the countries, but Portugal being a, a very, very strong contender, maybe too linked to Ronaldo, I don't know. Um, you know, possibly an ego battle. Uh, given some of the personalities involved. Would you see a bit of yourself in Daniel James? Yeah, yeah, uh, very much so. You're obviously better. Again, it's, you learn or you fail. And that's that's the thing about Old Trafford. You know, and this year as well, such a strange year as you, you obviously and everyone will acknowledge, but there are some players who've grown with no crowd you know Luke oh, Shaw oh yeah 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 look yeah. at Luke Shaw and I think what do you about this kind of season and instead of doing a there's crowd there's a lot of people who wouldn't have this, that's a mentality thing 
you know, when I was playing there, the sixty odd thousand people at Old Trafford, it can be a hell of a lonely place. Dean Henderson. Dean well, Henderson has yeah. been allowed to come in and make four glaring mistakes, and he's yeah. considered the future number one. If the crowd's there and they're jeering when you come for a ball and don't make it, regardless of whether a ref pulls a flag up or not, you lose your confidence and you're fucked, and you're at West Brom yeah. in two years. Yeah. So I think I think we're even in bigger trouble next season than we are now. I think Solskjaer has benefited because he has quality, but he has players who don't have the right mentality. I don't think he can instill that mentality in them. So when the crowd's back, if you go 1-0 down a Villa, yeah. it's not as easy to win 3-1 when they're screaming at you every throw-in. Yeah, yeah. Like, our away record, our away record's one of the best in the history of the country. That wouldn't happen if there was fans there. We're not good enough. As you said, the mentality of being at home, even when there's no crowd you have a responsibility to entertain and take the game to the opposition. And it's easier to defend the counter-attack. Do these boys even consider Old Trafford home, though? Because they've done nothing but fail in front of our eyes. These guys are the personification of the decline of Manchester United, really. They can't really view Old Trafford as home. They're just associated with tragedy. It's a beautiful theatre to play on when things are going well. Yeah, but the last six or seven years, it's been hell. It's yeah, been a footballing hell. There have been real glimmers in amongst that. There have been times, there have been periods where everyone's thought, right, we've got over this issue. Even the biggest results, though, you look at Everton FA Cup semi in uh, 2016 in Wembley. You look at the PSG comeback, it's in Paris. Well, the same in Samat as well. You know, It's hard. You play there and you've got to play well. Not just for 80 minutes, but for 90. If you make a mistake, you know, they all, they all traffic paddock. I know it oh so well, you know, 60-odd thousand people. But you can hear one voice sometimes if it's a derogatory comment, say, yeah, little shit couple, you know. You scouse bastards. Yeah. We're getting a lot of that. Yeah, plenty of that. Go back to college, you fucking snob. <laughs> yeah, along those lines. Um, so, you know, it, it that is part of the test, the ordeal almost of being a United player. You have to withstand that. And if you can withstand that, you can deal with anything. The doc always used to say that, you know, it's these people can make or break you, make sure they make you. And they love, they love to see a trial. You might be very good, but they love to see a trial. We are the victims of the people in power. And the one thing we will have over them is we know what it's like to fucking survive. And that's why the Mancunians and the Liverpoolians respect effort. Yeah. And that's, I think that's nearly gone against United in some ways because there's been some shithouses over the years who put in great effort who just aren't up to it. Yeah. Who've become folk heroes. Yeah, they become folk heroes, but, you know, there is almost that, always that element of but. Martin Buchan. Yeah. How good of a centre half? Peter Perfect. That's what we used to call him. Peter Perfect. He was, when I first went to Old Trafford, I only trained one day a week with the team. And that was a Tuesday. The rest of the week I was at uni. uni I was doing my, well, I used to play for my uh, interdepartmental side on a Wednesday. Why did you take time. uni so seriously as opposed to playing for, what was that about? I get, that was the dock, down to the dock. When I signed, um, I met with the dock. It was quite funny, quite funny meeting. He said, introduced to him, he says, uh, he said, listen, he said, I've never seen you play. He said, but people whose opinion I respect. Jimmy Murphy. Murph was one of them, yeah. Tommy Cavana, who was the Doc's coach, who was a scouser. He said, people whose opinions I respect said, you're not a bad player, so we're going to sign you. And I was fortunate to a certain extent because the Doc had just fallen out with Willie Morgan. Yeah. So I was signed as a right winger. 
and I, I came in and um, the first Saturday, I signed on the Wednesday, we used to have a pre-match meal, 12 o'clock on a Saturday at the cricket ground, Old Traffic Cricket Ground. Yeah. And I go there, didn't know any of the players, hadn't met them, turned up, best suit on, <laughs> and uh, I go in there and I'm thinking, oh, team meeting, I wonder what it's going to be like. And I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, Doc will be there and I'll be growling and do this, do that. And he came and told two jokes and said, right, let's go over there and have some fun. And we all drove over to Old Trafford. I'm thinking, this can't be for real. And the Doc, when again, going back to the first meeting, I, I said to him, listen, I'm halfway through my second year of university. If I finish my second year, I can delay my third year any time. I can take it later on in life after I finish with football. He said to me, don't you dare. He said, football, I chew you up and spit you out. He said, you have a degree for life. He said, you're staying at college. He said, you make sure you get your degree. But in his generation, college was such a bigger deal. Yeah, in was. his generation, literally only the fucking landed gentry went to college, <laughs> you know what I mean? In the Gobbles, I don't think anyone went, you know, he, he was a tough old boot. But like the but college, you never went into economics. Did you ever use your college degree? No, no. People thought I was intelligent. Still do because I've got a degree. But again, but the actual subject, the subject matter was economics. Yeah, yeah. You're not sitting down job interviews for management talking about fucking Maynard Keynes. You know what I mean? Yeah, but again, because I did a degree in economics, people thought I could understand balance sheets. So when I, you know, various chairmen I've spoken to, they've all said, well, you understand, uh, you know, business and the way these things are done. Yeah, of course, a profit and loss, you know. The way Doc left United was crazy. Well, it was because it was... Because he was, he, was he was having an affair with the physio's wife. Yeah. Um, and the two most... So far away from each other, you know, Mary Brown was very, very well spoke, spoken into horses... You know, lovely, lovely lady, the doc, as he would say himself, you know, scruffy from the gobbles. Um, you know, he would, great fun to be with. When I first heard about them being together, I just burst out laughing. I thought, you know, it's got to be the doc just taking the mickey here. You know, he's taking the piss out of everyone. This, This is not for real. It can't be right. Because they were an unlikely combination. And yet, you know, the doc just passed away not long ago. They're still together. Or they were still together. Were they, yeah? They were still together. Doc, who was Manchester United manager, he had an affair with the physio's wife at the time. And they were still together until his point of death. Yeah. And and the doc, you know, spoke, speaking about her and his kids, you know, the, the, there was love in abundance. You know, you could just tell from the way he was talking about it. So, you know, it all ended happily as far as they, they two were concerned. And we had the bizarre situation that Laurie Brown, the physio, stayed on at the club after the doc left. Principles used to come ahead of economics, and he was only a physio. Doc was a manager who was getting Manchester United back to where they wanted to be. He had the fans, he had the club, he had FA Cup finals. And they said, listen, morally you were wrong. Get the fuck out of the club, we're keeping the physio. Well, there, it was a Catholic club at the time, you know. So Matt was supposed to have had a very strong influence in. So he was he was thinking he was smoking his pipe and he was going, "You can't be of that." Yeah, well, his family values were such that. He, but Doc was a bit ignorant to do that to the physio. Yeah, but again, I I don't know the ins and outs totally, but to 
there were apparently a couple of social occasions where Laurie Brown knew about it. You know, he's taken my wife out to this social occasion because he needed somebody on the arm. I think Doc obviously was either divorced, divorcing at the time. So. Yeah. Do you think Doc's lying about the George Best stories? Was it just a case of Doc wanted to modernise and move on from the Busby days and Best was just thinking, this is always an option for me, I'm a genius? I think Doc gave him every chance. He wanted George to come back and be the best player, be as good as he ever was. Paddy was his biggest supporter. When I first went to Old Trafford, Paddy was assistant manager. He was a great help to me personally, still. A great bloke to be around, yeah. you know, very much. Very biased commentary. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's hilarious to watch. Oh, well, that, that is the man. He's fabulous. Yeah. You know, he, really, he was a huge help to me. Was he a good footballer, yeah? <sighs> yeah, hell of a good. And again, not a great athlete. But one of those classic uh, Scottish school ground players who who could uh, dominate a game, just give me the ball, give me the ball. You know, do you not think Scottish people are made to talk about football? As soon as they start talking about football, it's you can feel that passion, you can feel that desire, you can feel there's that growl, that bear which comes out, and you think, yeah, this fella means business. When you think about Irish football, do you just think? Because I look at the players we had at Old Trafford. You know, Jerry Daly. Do you play Paul McGrath? The Black Pearl, Paul McGrath. Brilliant. Absolutely. When he came, Kevin Moran. When Kevin Moran first came, you know, again, I always remember his first pre-match meal, he had a pair of brogues on, which must have, the sole must have been an inch deep. They were, had been around for quite a while. Now, pre-match meal, most people... Some people that just have chocolate. Some people, I used to have cornflakes. Kevin came in. He had a full meat and two veg, followed by apple pie and custard. You know, we're all looking at him thinking, how on earth can you eat all that and then play two hours later? But he was a magnificent athlete and not a great footballer, but... What a good defender. They are to defend him. Fergie, the minute Fergie came in, he goes, I don't want to see this guy, though, isn't it? Well, he, he... you think of what he did for Ireland. He, how many caps he had? It's sensational. McGrath was Van Dyke Ferdinand kind of level. Well, the though. Jack he, he, program, you know, there was a real love bond unity between him and Jack. And, but in terms of modern centre half, McGrath was McGrath could do it now. Yeah, well, he, he could play anywhere. Yeah. When he first came to Old Trafford, we're looking at him thinking, "Where's this fella come from? You know, why come he's not been playing before?" And they had a thing at Old Trafford. They always said the the era boys didn't develop till they were 1920. You know, they didn't really want to take them at 14, 15. Why? I don't know. Just something they had in their mind. They just felt, you know, whether it was a slower pace of life in Ireland, come over to England, takes it a few years to deal with it. You know, Jerry Daly, again, he didn't develop till later on. What happened at Man City? I shouldn't have taken the job. The job was offered. But 33 days, you, you have a great Palace job. You take a bit of a break. Yeah. Well, it it was a, a family thing to do with my, my son, really. Um, uh, we were going to move the family home to Manchester, and then it was decided it wasn't going to be moved. So for three weeks, I was going up and down the motorway, six hours, twice a week. And Did you I, think they'd give you more money to spend? No, 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 no. Um, Francis Lee, who was chairman at the time, um, did did well by me because I didn't want to introduce my family into the narrative of why I was leaving. So I just said it was getting too much for me. 
What's it like to sit there, though? Like, that was probably the point of your career when the media just got fucking ridiculous. There was people claiming you had AIDS. Well, the, the, I think the main one that I had was I was I was having an affair with the German left yeah, back. That you were gay and that you had AIDS. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't listen to that kind of thing. Oh, but, I, I heard it, obviously. It means nothing to me. I knew why I was going. I didn't need to justify it. I didn't feel as if I needed to justify it. Were you not eating due to the stress of leaving the job because it was such a big job to become Man City manager? Did you feel guilty for taking no, I it? I didn't feel str- I never did. Doing the job, I don't really... My first year in management was when I felt stressed. My first year at Crystal Palace, again, going back to what I said before, after the game, the players would look at me and say, why aren't we winning? You know, what's going on? What are we going to do to win? That first season... On the final Saturday of the season, I think we were seventh from bottom in the table. And that was the highest we'd been all season. Seventh from bottom. We were always hovering around the relegation zone. That was stress because I didn't know what I was doing. I'd go in and I'd think, shit, what are we going to do today? I haven't got a clue. Thank heaven I had an assistant manager, Ian Evans, who guided me through that period. And Ron Nodes, my way out of it was travelling Thousands and thousands of miles up and down the country trying to find better players for next to nothing. But with City, you would have known about the geography of the whole thing when you, when you took the job. Yeah. But, you know, I took the job, my ego took over. I, I would say that. That was my wrong decision. I was thinking I could do this. And then, you know, after three weeks of traveling up and down London to Manchester, London to Manchester, twice a week, six hours each way, I thought, there's no way I can do this long term. And I just thought it's best to get out now before I've done too much damage. So my easiest option was just to get out. I I thought I'd be lucky to get another job. I thought I'd have to fight my way up again. But, you know, luckily, um, you know, Ron Nodes, Dave Bassett, uh, he got me back in at Palace uh, doing some scouting and things like that. It was just like a, a gradual icebreaker to become a, a managerial option again. You brought Reading up. You came eighth. Unbelievable season. No, no, we, we had a simple philosophy at uh, Reading. It was always WNG, stupid one, I'd sign up, win next game. You know, right? How did you do it? Because Kevin Doyle, like, I sometimes I think I'm better than him and I can't play. No, not then. Not then you weren't. When we signed Doyle, he just finished the Irish season. So he was fit as a flea. When we were doing pre-season and all my players were struggling a bit, he was in his prime. He was like a gazelle running. I had three strikers, uh, Kitson, Lita, and Doyle. I thought Doyle would Kitson's a secret footballer, isn't he? No idea. It's yeah, yeah, the book yeah, yeah. about the guy yeah. who writes about his career. Yeah, yeah. He could well be, but I honestly don't know. He, he was just different. That was one of the things that appealed to me about him was that he was totally different. He... He walked his own path. He wasn't a great mixer with the rest of the team. I, I don't think he enjoyed the, the company of footballers. Could you relate to that? It was totally different in those days. You know, we used to play away games. Uh, the bus on a Friday, the first thing to go on the bus would be 24 cans of lager and six bottles of wine for the journey home. Um, you know, there was a player's lounge after a game and it was free beer for supposedly your families. And uh, sat there, Mrs. B, Mrs. Burgess used to run it, I always remember. Uh, like nine o'clock on a Saturday night, she'd be kicking the families, of, you know, Sammy McElroy, Jimmy Nichols. <laughs> they were in there because it was free booze all night. 
So it, it was a totally different environment. It was acceptable. It was almost encouraged. Playing for England, Ron Greenwood. We used to meet up West Lodge Park in London on a Sunday. You'd have a meal at 6.30, 7 o'clock. Ron Greenwood would then say, right, here's the schedule for the week. Training tomorrow, 10 o'clock. Training Tuesday, game Wednesday. You, you've got to do some press stuff. You've got to do some autograph stuff. Uh, that's it. So you may as well get off for your team meeting. The team meeting was all the lads going to the White Hart and Southgate for a few pints. And a, a couple of them would have a gallon. You know, there'd be a gallon going down. You can imagine that happening now, Sunday night in a bar. This, this was obviously before the, the camera phones and all this business. All the players were expected, 20 odd in the squad, to go down to White Hart and Southgate and have a few beers on a Sunday night. Well, some sensational drinkers, you know, Robbo obviously yeah. in his time. He wouldn't drink the night before a game. No, no. But, but two or three days before would have eight yeah, to ten pints. Well, I don't know exactly, but certainly on a Sunday night, sometimes we'd have the the gallon. That was my Christmas do. Ron uh, Ron Atkinson was manager, and like typical of Ron, the Christmas do for all the players. We'd have our do, and then he said, "Right, you're in two o'clock the next day for training." And like I'm not a good drinker. A little fella can't take it very well, and I struggled. The next morning, I got up. We'd stayed in the hotel. The players had organised a hotel because we knew a train at two o'clock. Get off, and I'm feeling dog rough, and I'm thinking Robbo has drank probably four times more than I have, so he's going to be struggling more. Big Ron got us running around the pitch, four forties, and all this business. He was doing it just out of seeing us struggling, and I am. Um, Dying on my feet. Robbo is gliding along like a gazelle, lapping me, trying to encourage me. Come on, Steve, keep going. I'm going, you shit. So he's he's face. just made of something else, yeah. is he? Yeah. Even his recovery from cancer was just so quick and so just it never happened. Robbo, Robbo is definitely, you know, carved as something different. You know, just in the dressing room before the game, he'd come in as a big signing, you know, big runs. He came in the dressing room before the game, and I'm looking at him thinking, he must be shitting himself now. So he had his New Balance contract with his new boots. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you would think the pressure on him. He did the signing on the pitch. How cringeworthy. With, with, with Brian the, May's perm. <laughs> with the perm, and you're thinking, oh... And yet, he delivered. You know, come to games, you'd see him in the dressing room, and come on, let's just... If he won more, if he was at United a different era, the Skulls, Gerrards and Lampards, he's as good of a player, really, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, without doubt. Better, probably. Well, I would say so, you know, very much. And again, he could play anywhere. You know, if you'd have said to him, go centre-forward, he would have done a great job there. He was just that, that kind of character. Strong, driven, powerful good footballing brain. Do you think footballers care as much now? You know, Hazard's laughing after losing the European Cup semi-final with his ex-teammates and I mean properly laughing. He does not even necessarily know the score. It's a different world. You know, it's a... But different world. Not a progression. A different world. That's what I would say. I think Alan Sugar, when he talked about Carlos Kickerballs, I think that was the beginning of the suspicion about footballers caring. Because when you're... In the trenches, when you're playing, when there's, you know, you're sweating your guts up trying to win a game, then 
you know, there is a special bond between players. But as soon as we got 25-man squads, soon as the squads became more international, there was an element introduced of, I don't care if I'm playing or not, because yeah. I'm going to be picking up wedge yeah. and I'm going to get the bonus whether they win or not. And that goes back to the, the squads of 25. You know, I think it's the art of managing management is handling the 25 because every week there's six or seven who know they're not going to be playing. There is only one loyalty in football, the loyalty of the fan to his own club. Which that is dying, is which, which has to die now because the club no, no, has a, the clubs die. are slowly telling the fans to go and fuck themselves. No, no, they, 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 not now. I think after the lesson that's going to be learned or has been learned, you know, cap in hand, they've got, they've got to please the fans now. They've got to get the fans back on board. But every because club, the fans will never rebel hundred percent. They will. They won't. You're a guy who has an interest in FC United of Manchester. Yeah. There must be something behind that. Well, why why isn't it now not in the football league? Why isn't it not now getting crowds? But you must kind of agree with the guys who said fuck the Glazers and moved off and have five. Yeah, but there's seventy five thousand every Saturday at Old Trafford. But a lot of them aren't the original guys whose dads cheered you on. A lot of the a lot of them are. You know, the core of that crowd is still United till I die. That is. You know, it is the theme that is tattooed on yeah. the hearts of... But do you believe the real millions. soul of Manchester United is watching FC now? No, I think the soul of United has been sold. There must be a reason you're involved. You respect them. Yes. I would say it's community. That's that's the most important thing. And before, the, you know, the lockdown where we couldn't go to games, I was going to non-league games. And all of a sudden, it rekindled, a, you know... a a joy almost in my heart going to non-league games round about me. Dulwich Hamlet, like a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred people for most home games. Just people supporting their hometown community club and the community that was United, even though it was massive, sixty odd thousand when I was playing. You know, they there was a community involvement there. You see almost get fed up at the end of the season going to player of the year functions for bizarre places around the British Isles, and, you know, you'd be thinking, this is something special, different. And if that was a moment in time that's got to be cherished and will never be reproduced, then so be it. But I still think that is the, the kindle of a core of something you So when it comes to FC, having spent eight hours on a flight with Matt Busby and having yeah. played and been a iconic representative of the Docks Army era, do you think he'd like FC? Yeah, without doubt. You think Busby would? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure he would. Yeah. But Fergie, I'm sure you can't say it, but I'm sure yeah. he has immense respect for what happened. Yeah, as a Docklands well, Glaswegian. Now, what's the next development? You know, I'm not sure. You can either believe an apology from the Glazers and pretend like they give a shit, which they don't, or everyone can start shifting over to FC. That's that's the huge debate. But the commercialism now is but, the god of football. And and fuck that. But somebody who, who actually cares about what the, the soul of the club stood for, Munich, Newton Heath, is the Manchester United you ran for currently FC? Oh, that's interesting now. Yeah. To a certain extent, I would have to say yes. But for that to really have an impact, it's got to grow. And I'm not sure how it grows. The values that United used to have or 
you hope still have somewhere at the embers are, are, are just glittering just a little bit despite their commercialism and everything that is going on at the club uh, Steve Koppel it's been great to talk to you thank you very much for coming on the Michael Anthony show football still breathing is the is the the conclusion here we're not even at the Phoenix stage you know I think there's there's a questioning I think everybody in the last year has questioned elements about their own lives and football given the behaviour of the commercial crappers then rightfully it's come under the microscope and I hope it's a cleansing period for the people you know the, the, the people who know nothing about the history and integrity of this game they have the responsibility to take it forward and embrace the public and take them with them. The question has got to be answered. Here's to helping. Steve Cobble, thank you very much. MA Show. It's been how many years, my oh, boy? You still don't know my chairs of joy. No need to go, just take it slow. Podcast. And have you heard the Michael Anthony show? I show. Makes me feel just fine. What's it? Makes me see the light. What about those tears? Tears believe my eyes. How's it make it feel? Makes 